In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of Akita, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Okay, question and answer. One question is, how do we help guide youth, especially to make the transition from um, from the church being their family's religion to really owning it for themselves? What are some of the ways we can help them, especially in the world? Even if they're homeschooled, they're just saturated and they still get So the question is, is how do you make that transition, help the, the young adults make the transition from being a family religion to them appropriating it ultimately themselves. And the principal way that that is done is through um, a consistent prayer life. Part of it has to do with the fact that um, uh, by consistent prayer life, I mean of the family and especially the father when they see the fathers doing it regularly and then they're brought to do it regularly. It should not be onerous. I pray three to four hours a day, and I'm in the habit of it, so it's pretty easy. Kind of like it. it gives me an excuse not to work. But the point being is, is that um, it's really through the prayer life and having them lead it, but also in explaining the Catholic faith. You can't. It's not just enough to tell them do this, do that, or this is wrong, or this is morally sinful. You have to show them the why. Once they know the why of it. And if they're praying regularly and receiving the sacraments or getting the confession regularly, that will help. The other thing is, too, is, and I say this as an exorcist, is saying binding prayers to keep any demons from causing them to go off the rails. Because that's very often what happens, is there's always one in a family where the demons get to them and they just, they're off. So saying binding prayers against any demons that would um, uh, keep them from fully adopting the faith. Hey, Father, thank you so much for coming and being with us. Um, it's the 100th anniversary, centennial anniversary of Our Lady of Adam's uh, visit. And I um, wondered if you, uh, sorry for if this is too sensational, but I wondered if you could just sort of speak to what you, you know, think might happen in the next six months to a year, things that, I don't know, have you reflected on that? And um, is there anything that, I mean, yeah, actually, I want to start a pool where everybody kind of throws in what they think is going to happen. Of course, I'll be running the pool, so I'll be the guy making all the money. The, uh, if we take, uh, I mean, as far as Fatima goes, because of the fact that she asked the Holy Father to consecrate Russia specifically, it's not enough just to do the world. You have to do Russia by name. And that's because of the fact that the problems that we're dealing with are funneled through Russia. That being the case, then what's necessary is um, for the Pope to consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart. If we take the Sacred Heart as the paradigm, then what we know is is that um, there is a hundred years um, from the time in which the consecration is asked, which we saw that Christ said to St. Margaret Mary that the King of France must consecrate France to his sacred heart. They didn't do it a hundred years to the week. They were lopping off the heads of the royalty. Now what that tells you is, is what? Is that the one who must consecrate is the one who pays the price if he doesn't do it. That's what that means. At least that's the common opinion of the, the theologians who take a look at it. So if that's the paradigm, why a hundred years? hundred years is a very specific thing. There is a very specific reason why Satan asked God for a hundred years, as we know through the um, vision of Pope Leo XIII. There's a very specific reason for a hundred years. And it's because once you reach a hundred years, you have passed the craw, you have passed the threshold of what is called immemorial custom. The average person lives somewhere between 70 and 80, maybe 90 years. After that, so if something is introduced within the beginning of that, 
you got about a hundred years and then after that people start forgetting what the tradition is and what the customs were that's specifically why Satan asked for a hundred years he was going to destroy the faith in the beginning and within a hundred years it would be practically forgotten for all intents and purposes that was the goal Okay, that's why you have a hundred years to do the consecration because of the fact that you're reaching that threshold of it's being forgotten and if something's not done about it then something's going to happen now the good news is is everybody keeps yammering about it so nobody's forgetting it at all I was a little alarmed when this Holy Father said I'm the bishop in white referred to in Fatima I have never accepted the interpretation that John Paul II was, made, was that referent because the Creed is pretty clear that the Bishop of White, which we all, everybody interprets as the Holy Father, the Bishop of White comes out of the rubble in Rome. All of the fathers of the church have said that in the end times, Rome would be destroyed. And so we know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. It's been predicted by numerous saints throughout time. So we just the question is, is this it? Is this the time in which it's going to happen? Does this mean it's going to happen in October? I don't know. It kind of looks that way, but you don't know. Ultimately, with prophecies, you can't really tell until you're at, past them and can look back and verify them as far as what they really mean. I mean, we know it's going to happen. In the sense of the third secret, we know that what's in there is going to be, that's going to happen because it, Fatima has yet to miss a beat, so we know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. So, uh, there we go, yeah. Thank you, Father. Uh, just a two part question, if you don't mind. You can speak briefly on your opinion of the Benedict option that it seems to be prevalent in the Catholic news world today. Well, first I'm going to ask you for what your definition of the Benedict Option is. Yeah, I believe it would be the idea, like we see in places like Clear Creek, Oklahoma, where yeah. people are moving together around a monastery or moving together. Right. As far as the Benedict Option, I think the idea is a good one especially in a certain sense that we are kind of entering into or we could easily be entering into if there is a kind of major chastisement it's a kind of a, a dark age of a sort where things are going to be very difficult for a little while my only concern about it is is that the manner in which they are trying to do it now is in direct inversion into the way in which it was done in the medieval period in the medieval period the monasteries were started the monasteries had large tracts of land. As a result of that, they hired and were the economic center for everybody as well. Most of these places, like at Clear Creek, even though I have a great love for the, uh, the monks and have a great appreciation for what they're doing, they're not an economic center or powerhouse, so a lot of people are having a hard time finding jobs there. So the second, so there's, there's that, and it's something that historically always grew organically. So the monastery would set up, and then people weren't invited they just came organically and it grew then but what's happening now is is in fact I was talking to a friend of mine he said he says oh great you guys are moving out to Colorado he said hey what about buying a piece of land and then a bunch of lay people can buy around that and we'll start this Catholic commune and you can be the head of it and I'm like you know dude I don't know what you're smoking <laughs> I mean this is Colorado but I don't know what you're smoking <laughs> The fact of the matter is, is that not one single instance of a Catholic commune started in this country in the last 30 years has ever survived more than five to seven years. Late people can't get along with each other. That's why it has to be organic. It has to grow up organic. So I'm all, I, I'm all in favor of the idea. I think it's a good idea. I just think it has to grow organically and it can't be forced. That's my only observation. I actually like the idea. I think it's a good idea. But, you know, places like Clear Creek, the only people that can survive are people who manage to find a job or, or retired people. So um, that's at least my impression. So, and it has, like I said, it has to be something that grows up organically. The other thing is, too, is, is and this is something which I don't think a lot of lay people know, centering around a monastery is fine if you want to go to Mass or maybe go to confession once in a while, but canonically and otherwise, they're not supposed to be baptizing, doing marriages or confirmations of people. 
So they're not going to be able to fulfill the sacramental needs of your family, which is a problem, unless the bishop gives them specific permission. So, and I, again, I'm not trying to say no to the idea. I just, I just want to make sure it's done right. So, okay. Father, do you have an opinion on why the Holy Father has chosen not to answer the duty? <laughs> uh, you know, I, it would be pure speculation, quite frankly. I think the reason he doesn't want to answer the I Let me put it to you this way. The reason I think he doesn't want to answer the dubia is a very convoluted canonical answer, which would probably take about 20 minutes to explain. So, um, if you want to ask that privately, I'd be happy to go over the canonical thing with you. So, uh, you spoke of both being possibly uh, improperly elected. Uh, yes. Going to be something that's going to be blatantly obvious, or what would it'll be known. Yeah, it'll be known. It, it just means okay. A lot of people say that he's not the true pope, he's not a valid pope. Oh, no. Actually, the canonical process that um, Francis appears to be talking about doesn't touch on validity, because he says the man will be raised to the office. All that's required for someone to assume the office of the papacy is the recognition of the cardinals worldwide that he is the pope. That's it. Boom. Then he's pope. So the mechanism of the election or something like that is all um, secondary, and that's that that it's that that's going to be the problem. There's going to be some canonical problem with his election. That's what it appears to be, anyway, or some other thing like that. Yes. Hi, Father. My question is in regard to a few signs in the sky that are coming up. First, the solar eclipse on August twenty-first, two thousand seventeen. I recently read that it's believed by scholars that. The thing, the sign that partly converted the Ninevites uh, because of Job's uh, warning was also a total solar eclipse that occurred at that time. Right. There's also a total solar eclipse that occurred in Eastern Europe on August 21st, August 21st 1914, right before World War I began. Um, so I just had a question regarding the one that's going to occur over the United States and also about the constellation of Virgo, which is going to appear. On September 23rd, 2017, and you said that it uh, resembles the uh, image of Our Lady in Revelation 12. Right. I was just wondering if you had any connection between those two signs in the sky, if they could indicate anything. Uh, not any more than you did. Other than it, uh, other than some scholars think that this is a sign that we're headed for some significant events in human history. What those will be, we don't know ultimately. I mean, it's probably the chastisement, but who knows? You know. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean, there, there can be, um, I think there is something to that. I, how much, though, I would put in it? I think I'd watch other stuff more. Does that make sense? So. Uh, my question is regarding the virtue of fasting. It's, so is the, I understand the frequency that the church prescribes is not adequate to perfect that virtue, but right. is the intensity adequate to acquire that virtue of fasting? And regarding other acquired virtues, what is a good work you would recommend or as a, as a guide to attain them? If it's a virtue, uh, a moral virtue, which it is, it means that it has to be something done on a regular basis. And by regular basis probably means once or twice a week, frankly. The church's fasting rule of one full meal and two that don't equal a full meal, I think, is, is a beginning for most people. I know women who don't even eat half that, so I don't know if that's necessarily going to be enough. So that means, though, of course, as the moralists say, that a virtue is, is a mean relative to the individual. So some people who fast um, can fast much more rigorously without it affecting their health, while others don't. So... Um, so it just depends on the individual. And usually I recommend people start out with the church's fasting rule and start doing it on Wednesdays and Fridays. As a, just do it regularly. Then, if you think it should be increased, either talk to your pastor or spiritual director to tighten it up a little bit. I'm a little uh, reluctant to tell people to just on your own start doing more only because I have dealt with people who overdid it. So 
some people need to be moderated in their zeal for their spiritual life. Okay. Yes? So you mentioned the chastisement, and you also mentioned that it's a good idea to have food on hand. But what happens, what would the moral principles be with regard to if you have food and other people do not? It depends. The moralists generally say that your surplus is not your own. So let's just say for the sake of argument, it became clear within six weeks the food supply would start to return, and you're standing on you know, 10 months supply or a year supply, and people are starving. You can't hold on to your food. You've got to start helping other people. On the other hand, in fact, it's kind of funny because um, one priest said, he says, you know, I got this food, but I know I'll be starving in a week because I'll be giving it to everybody. Okay. So, in other words, f- from your surplus, you, you, have, you have an obligation to dispense the surplus according to prudence. From that which is not your surplus, you're not obligated, but you're permitted to out of charity. Generally speaking, heads of family should not do so except insofar as it's not going to take away from the, from the survival of their own family. That's, those are the general principles. Um, on the blessed holy water, are you able to add water on top of that? Yes. As long as you don't add more than 50%. So I tell people, because there's always somebody who gets it down to like 50 and they're not real sure. And then Father added is that, you know, okay, look, once it gets down about a third, you can just add water. And then it retains its blessing. One thing I do tell people, though, is about once a year, you should still be refreshing it, or on, on regular intervals, you should be refreshing it. You can also do the same thing with oil. Obviously not salt, because it's a discrete unit. But you can do it with um, oil as well. Yes. Father, um, what does the purple scapula do? Mm. And in terms of protection, what does it not do? Mm. And how do you reconcile, let's say, the... Um, upcoming chastisement with Jesus' most prominent word, do not be afraid. Yeah, I'm not afraid of it. I mean, I'm either going to be dead or I'll be hopefully being purified through the process. So, and that's the whole point about the fear is you shouldn't fear it in the sense of if you're in, in the proper state, God will provide for you. And if he's not, then it'll still be a purification process. Um, you know, they, I don't know if you saw that NASA did research and found out the particular chemical in your body that reconstructs your gene sequencing. And so what they've done is, is they found that when they gave this to mice who were old, it renewed their, their DNA. And so they had the same DNA as young thing. It's literally, they'll be able to give it to you when you're 80 years old and before it's over with. You're not going to lose your wrinkles, but you'll basically have the body of someone in their 20s, okay? The reason I'm saying this is who wants to live that long? And I think that's something that I think people have to, if they have a detachment from this life and their attachment is God alone, and their attachment isn't to themselves, then they're not going to be afraid. The purple scapular was given by um, our Lord to Mary Julie Jehenny. Now, these visions don't have approbation, but all the theologians that I have talked to who have reviewed it, to a man, they all say, these look authentic. Right. So, and the many things that she predicted, we um, came true. The tr- I'm not sure why the church hasn't really pursued it too much, but um, she asked when she asked about the chastisement. Christ said it's going to come in three waves. The first wave is that man will become so sinful that God will intervene. This was in the 30s, I think, or 40s that she got this these revelations. And then he said, after that, the heads of world government will become indignant that God got involved and they will unleash two of their own, which would seem to fit Akita, because Akita said, if man isn't careful, the chastisement will come from his own hands. He said that by the time you get to the third wave of the chastisement, it will be so bad that the bodies will be stacked in the streets and there will be diseases that are completely unrecognizable. It's going to be something biological at least if her revelations are true. So she asked Christ for a scapular to protect so that those who had it would be protected from the effects of the chastisement. And so he gave her the purple scapular, according to the revelations. And so I tell people, 
it really should be a, um, a matter of devotion that you're holding to it. But what you can't say, what it does, it, what it's not, is an absolute guarantee that if you have that thing in your house, you're going to float through the chastisement unscathed. And it doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about your sinfulness or anything like that. So that's the the general thing that's kind of behind it. Ironically, I kind of get in trouble now and then because it's the only set of visions that I've ever read that I promote that have not received um, ecclesiastical approbation. So if somebody says, well, I'm not going to buy this, I'm not going to do anything until the church says year and day, it's perfectly fine with me. <laughs> it's just that my basic theory is, well, you know, even if it's not true, having this thing there as a sign or a indication to God, as an act of devotion to God that you want his protection and chastisement doesn't seem bad to me. But anyway, yes. Thank you, Father, for being here. It's a pleasure to hear you. Um, I saw you blessing the candles earlier, and it kind of recalls, uh, I think it's like prophecy of sorts, that talked about a period of three days of darkness, mm -hmm. that uh, only blessed candles would be the light that would be seen, and that they would not be extinguished. I think I heard something related to this, that there might be sounds and stuff. It almost sounds like a, a, a new type of Passover where there's... It's the night of the living dead, except yeah. it's dark. Uh, and that, you know, there'd be, you might be even hearing familiar voices. It might sound like family members asking mm. for you to open the doors and such. But I, I don't know all the details around it, and I just wanted to know if you could help patch the holes in my memory. Uh, yeah, the difficulty with the three days of darkness is, is that it's patched. In other words, different saints have, or different people have said different things about it, right? Some of it is that it actually started, some of it comes, some of it comes from Garabandal, which the church has not approved. On the other hand, they have said no to it either. And then other, others have actually signed off on it. When I first heard it, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not so sure. But then as time goes on, as I get older, maybe it's because I'm getting gray hair and I can't think clearly, but it seems to me that people have become so immunitized, and by that I mean that their standard of right and wrong and judgment of truth and goodness and beauty is so interior and subjectivized that I don't think any external horrific thing would ever correct them at this stage. I think we are that disordered. Even if we went through a horrific war, I don't think it's going to straighten people out. They just aren't getting it. So then I thought to myself, well, that would make, that would be, make sense as to why there would be a three days of darkness in which there would be a, an enlightening of conscience of each individual man by God directly. I can see how God may end up having to do something like that. Will this all happen? I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. It may actually correspond with what Mary Julie Johanna said, God will intervene. Maybe that's his form of intervention. Because after that, what's going to happen is, is the good and the evil are going to divide and separate in a much more radical way than they are now. So, anyway. It, it really, to answer your question, that's, that's almost like a whole conference on its own. So, yeah. Thank you, Father. Um, I was hoping you would comment on the auxiliary Christian Arnold. Uh, what would you like? What kind of comments would you like? Could you tell us something about it? Right. Yeah, what it is, is it's a group of people, it's a group um, which was started by two exorcists um, because they were a bit horrified with the way that certain things were happening in relationship to uh, exorcists going to charism certain charismatic people, not all of them, and getting in, them involved in praying for other people in the manner in which it was being done. So they started this in order to um, provide two things. One, for people to provide for the priests who are members of the general Christian home to free the people that they're praying for. The second is to provide protection for all of its members. Right now we're actually in the process of having the entire website translated into about seven different languages. It'll probably take about six months to get that fully up and running. So, But in the meantime, we have um, all different languages. The Latin was just put up there, but after I put it up there and I started using it, I'm like, uh, there's errors in the Latin and there's um, different phraseology I would use, etc. So it's gonna, that'll be updated here probably within the week. But anyway, the point is, is it's a group and to our knowledge, there's somewhere between 80 and 100,000 people saying these prayers worldwide. 
at this point. So it's a very powerful thing to plug into. We recommend it to anybody who's dealing with any kind of spiritual warfare. Um, one of the most marked times, I mean, we get reports all the time. Um, the deacon who actually runs the website gets constant reports from people who have broken, you know, lifelong bad mortal sin habits, and but just by saying the prayers, and people who have, um, you know, overcome major family issues as a result of the prayers. Um, the most dramatic one I saw is a, a family who had a daughter who was possessed. I said, here, why don't you try these prayers and see if they work. The family started saying the prayers, and the daughter screamed uncontrollably for three straight days. I'm like, hey, this is working pretty good. Okay. Uh, it's Auxilium Krishnam, which is A-U-X-I-L-I-U-M, and then Christian, Orum, O-R-U-M, dot org. Just means Mary Help of Christians. So. Father, I've uh, recommended that to a couple people who've called, and then some of them have said, it says on there, don't do it unless your spiritual director allows you to. Should've, the reason that was, yeah, yeah, the reason, or your pastor, in other words, you should talk to a priest normally. Part of the reason that that was put on there was to avoid, you know, the person that who's completely not spiritually prepared. Okay. So that's the real reason for it. Yeah, it's not a, no, it's not a, it's, it's more of a, a recommendation. It's not a requirement, it's a recommendation. So, yes. Yeah, I have a question about, um, I hear that, like, some people are, some people are on the fence about Vatican II and the, the changing of the order of the past. Mm. Are those two linked, or were they, was it just coincidental at that time, period of time that all these changes happened in the church? You know, in, uh, one time I was talking to this one bishop and he came up to me after they had just come out with the new translation for the new rite of mass and he said this is the third missile they've put out in 20 some years I said I understand I don't, we don't like change okay are they connected yeah they're connected but only because of the fact that historically probably the best thing I would recommend if people really want to get a good sense of what actually happened in Vatican II was uh, Amario's book on Iota Unum, that one, or the other one is Vatican II, The Untold Story, which Cardinal Burke recommends. Um, the one that kind of set off the whole, dis the real whole discussion was The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber. Those, so those are books that people can take a look at. The difficulty, I mean, there's a whole series of things that I think the real problem with the Vatican II in relationship to any discussion I've ever heard of it is is there's people who will tenaciously hold on to everything and absolutely insist that it's infallible when Paul VI said nothing was done extraordinarily, which means, which is technical theological language for saying that he, who is the primary promulgator, and if he doesn't do it, it doesn't happen, he had no intention of using infallibility in the Second Vatican Council. Some of the thing, there's a couple of things in the Second Vatican Council that are directly contrary to papal teaching in the past, such as um, uh, libertas prestantissimum and things like that, such as uh, freedom of religion, um, that was actually condemned. And the actual reasons that appear for why it's acceptable in Vatican II were actually already dealt with by the prior Holy Father. So those are things that are going to, the church is going to have to work out at some stage. Its connection to the liturgy, I think, is less direct in the sense that liturgical stuff. The modernists, when they were being purged out of the seminaries and universities after Pius X in uh, 1907 put out Paschendi and then in 1910 put out the Oath Against Modernism, they basically went underground and went into areas like the liturgy where you could make observations about how things could be changed and not be called a heretic. So that's why by the time you get to the 40s and 50s, you've got books being written on on the liturgy, such as Jungmann's The Mass of the Roman Rite, which in my estimation is one of the worst pieces of scholarship ever written on the liturgy. Most people say, yeah, but it's really, it's, it's really detailed. Yeah, but his analysis of the authors, his, his reasonings behind stuff is completely, I think, questionable. That all being said, because I think he was modernist, basically. The point being is, is this all happens. Uh, people ask, do you think that we've got the full third secret? Well, the answer is, Obviously, someone has completely got it wrong. Because either what we got, which I think is authentic, but I don't think it's the whole banana. Because if it's not, if it is the whole banana, 
then why are all these cardinals and all these people who did read it and made comments about it, nothing they said in the comments line up with this thing at all? So somewhere, something's wrong. And so I think that's something which, and just by keep, keep repeating the mantra, we already released it, we already released it, isn't going to solve the problem. The magistrate is going to have to address these things at some point. Or it will just come out, I mean, one of the two. And, um, and some of you have actually heard me say, which, you know, I, quite frankly, because I heard what the third secret was, I was really interested more in the Tre Fontani revelations in Rome, the Our Lady of Revelation to Bruno in Italy. Which, by the way, a close friend of his who lived with him for 20, or who was a friend of his for over 20 years, has put out a book on some of the things that Bruno said is contained in there, and I'm about a third of the way through the book. Most of it is pretty much straightforward Fatima stuff, pray the rosary, man is gonna become sinful, you gotta do penance, things like that. But there's other parts of it that uh, I'm waiting to get to. So anyway, and that revelation, and it, he recounts it in this book, I'm hoping it gets translated into English, but I can read the Italian, so it's not that big of a deal, but in that book, he talks about how after Pius XII read it, it was sealed, and boom, nobody's read it since. So, there it is. If I were Pope, first thing I'd see is bring that little puppy over here. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um, what do you see coming now with the priests that are being formed, or recently formed, and their education in seminary? What are we to expect coming in this generation uh, as the older ones leave and this group is coming in? What, what do you think? Well, I think the general perception is that it's improving. Huh? I mean, there's some of the guys coming out um, are pretty solid, actually. Uh, my concern is is that they, they got a pretty good they got a decent formation but there's gaps but that would be true of anybody at any period in history which I'm con I'm convinced that as time goes on they'll fill in those gaps so I, I think that a lot of the guys come out you also have to remember though that there's some seminaries that are still as bad as they were 25 years ago so there's always going to be a certain percentage of that but the ge generally, the number of the clergy, the newer clergy coming out are generally better than their counterparts, say, 40 years ago. Um, the guys that are the older guys are all, not all of them, of course, but a lot of the older clergy are uh, either embittered or worried that all the changes that they made will be undone. And I was saying this when I was first ordained. I said, you know, these guys are going to get draconian and it's going to be really ugly before it gets over with. And I'm hoping I'm wrong. But, um, and, and then a few years later, I read an article by Richard McBride who was saying that very thing. This is, we, this is a catastrophe. We've got to do something to clamp down on this and get this straightened out or impose the changes. I love this. Impose the changes and make them permanent. Well, first of all, if it's something that's changeable, by definition, it's not necessarily permanent. So if they try and impose it, the next guy can just come in and clean house, right? Like we saw with all the executive orders in the last two months. So, and this, so I think that, um, I think it's generally going to improve, but the problem is, is just about the time the clergy are slowly getting their act together. I think overall too, liturgically, it's a bit better, you know, generally. So I think that it's getting better, but I, that doesn't mean that uh, we are out of the woods. I think it's kind of ironic, just about the time we're starting to get our act together, the world is, you know, swallowing us up whole, so to speak. Okay. Yes? You brought up the word, the name Hannity earlier, so the yeah. door or question. <laughs> and it does involve him, but something like him. Yeah. Jewish talk shows. And um, I've been really listening him, to him lately and learned uh, something I really didn't realize was basically how our society has been indoctrinated by the left. Right. By Marxism, socialism, and whatnot. And um, it concerns me because um, I never knew that, but I do recall you talking about in past conferences about in the church how at one time, um, what's that her name, Belladog? Belladog, yeah. How she, uh, head of the Communist Party, infiltrated America, testified before Congress, said she placed a thousand or something of seminaries, communist, communist seminaries, communist yeah. seminaries in, into the Catholic Church. Yeah. All right, so you have this uh, 
indoctrination that's ha happening on the government secular end. And then you have uh, what I seems to be an indoctrination in the church. And right. I'm wondering, all these priests, you know, uh, obviously there's an effect of what happened there. We're seeing it today. Right. So if there's an indoctrination, which I think you just agree with, what are we to do with that? Because uh, shouldn't, I mean, the news about learning about the indoctrination, about the leftist ideas and whatnot, and how prevalent in that society is. Um, I mean, I'm in a group here of about a hundred and so people, and um, why, why isn't, I mean, th this stuff is something that should be, that should be, I, I don't know, I'm trying to wrap my head around why more people aren't hearing these things. Well, my uh, two, well, there's two reasons. One is because the fox is in charge of the hen house. So the priests and the bishops who are part of this whole problem or who are the children of the problem aren't going to do anything to clean it up because they happen to agree with it. But I think the other side of it is is the fact that this is all stuff that was done, you know, in secrecy and pulled off. That doesn't even include the little thousands of um, Freemasons, too, that infiltrated the church. In fact, the Freemasons said our real hope is that eventually we would end up with a pope who basically agreed with us on everything but wasn't one of us. So the point being is, is that I think a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people have sufficient critical skills to stand back and take a look at it and say there's something wrong. The second thing is, is that it's a grace to see the problem, that there's something wrong, right? Because some people think that the situation in the church is just absolutely hunky-dory. For a while there, I was kind of delighted about that one of the positive effects of the pedophilia scandal is this whole business is saying that, you know, this is the new springtime and things have never been in the church. That just got murdered through that process. But now, recently, some of them are trying to bring it up again. Of course, everybody doesn't buy it because we all know the church is not in its springtime. So the point being is, is that I think that a lot of people just, um, I just don't think a lot of people have the grace or the intellectual wherewithal to even see the nature of the problem. You see this really a lot, a lot among the youth, right? I mean, one of the things that came out during the election is, is that the youth have been thoroughly indoctrinated in communism slash socialism in the schools because they see no problem with it. They just loved Bernie Sanders to death. So I think that that's, um, I think that's what it is. It's intellectual formation, and as a result of that, they don't have the intellectual wherewithal nor the grace to see it. Which is why I tell people, look, when you're able to see the problem, don't go around beating people over the head because you're abusing it a grace, right? You have to pray for people. I'm sorry, one, one more. I mean, sure. All right. Uh, regarding the Mass and your article in the Latin Mass magazine regarding the, uh, the Latin Mass having more merit, merit. Yeah. Um, one thing I'm still kind of fuzzy about is how, uh, the, how that applies to uh, a situation where, if you're at a, if you're at a uh, uh, you're at a church uh, that says the Latin Mass and everybody basically is on board with that tradition, right? How does that um, how does that compare with another if you're at, a, at another Mass and even if even if it's a, a extraordinary if it's a Latin Mass and half of that are like Novus Ordo. Uh, uh, parish, parishioners and half are consistent. Is, I mean, I'm trying to. Can you help clarify how the merits in you being at one church versus another church, church and the people involved there, how that affects that whole thing? Uh, okay. Well, here here's the thing. I lay the principles out, but as to the concrete application of it in a situ in those kinds of situations, in the end, only God would know. Quite frankly, I find that most Novus Ordo Catholics are less arrogant than traditionalists, even though I'm a traditional priest. And so I probably 
would I would <laughs> I mean I'd be one of these guys that I'd, I'd kind of be like um, uh, Warren Buffett making money off of the bad economy. I'm the type of guy that would probably bet against the traditionalists of have as the traditionalists meriting more, even though the mass does, because I think that the traditionalists are stiff-necked, arrogant people as a general rule, because most of them are slipping into Gnosticism. I've got secret knowledge that nobody else knows. I'm better than everybody else because I go to the traditional Latin mass. It's just pride, right? That's where my concern is. But anyway, that all being said, I, in that article, I just lay out the principles as to the application in the end. The only way we'll know is when we get to heaven. Yes? I have a question here that's reading your uh, strike. So, uh, where we came from in Florida, there was a parish priest nearby, a uh, Catholic church, um, and he said that he was an exorcism priest. And part of his ministry there was to, um, I guess, try to exercise demons from people. And he had lay people part of the ministry. They were there and present and laying hands on and, and doing any of the things. And um, my wife and I just wondered if our Catholic radar was going off and saying, this doesn't maybe sound quite right. Should lay people be involved in this kind of stuff as if it's any other ministry like people before and others? Is, is lay people involved? in exorcisms as part of a ministry of parish, a legit thing? Uh, the answer is yes, but it's the manner in which they're involved. Church's general requirements are that if you're doing exorcism over a woman, you are to have another woman present for propriety reasons. And when we do exorcisms, according to our protocol, the person who is possessed has to bring someone with them to represent their interests but also to babysit, because a lot of times after people come out of a session, they can't function, and I can't, I don't have time to babysit, frankly. And I'm not trying to be denigrating of the person and their problem, it's just that if I'm going to optimize my help for other people, I can't be sitting there, you know, waiting while the person's in this daze, right, um, once the session's finished. So you have the person that represents them, then the diocese has to have someone else repre represent them. And so that you, if it's a woman, it has to be a woman present, and you always usually want another man present anyway in case it starts getting to the point where some you need physical help to get this thing under control. So at a minimum, then the exorcist and then the possessed person. So at a minimum, you're going to have four to seven people present at every solemn exorcism, and most of those are going to be lay people. What the problem is, is that you don't want the lay people laying hands on because they don't have the authority to do it. And you have to be extraordinarily careful. So during the sessions that I have, I normally don't have our assistants hold anything on the body of the possessed. If her husband is present and it's a woman who's possessed, and it's in an area where modesty can still be observed, but the priest wouldn't want to be holding anything there, then I'll hand him and say, here, hold this on her back or on her stomach or what have you. But the point being is, is that um, the lay people uh, are actually an indispensable part of it because there was a discussion among our, in our society, and we basically concluded, given the way priests are sued, or accused, and they are always presumed guilty, even after proven innocent. The fact of the matter is, is if you, they said, well, if you have more than one priest, you're safe. No, you're not. You're even, it's even more dangerous because they're just going to claim gang rape. So the point being is, is that you could have 500 priests there and you're not going to be safe. You're just not going to be. So that's why you actually have to have lay people actually present, and most dioceses require it in their protocol, and we require it. It's just how they have to be present and how they have to be there. I always tell people the ideal people that you want on your team are people who are over 55, have no children at home, and who are extraordinarily uh, good Catholics by leading the sacraments and praying regularly, especially meditation. Those are, that's the ideal person um, to come and help. So you actually have to have them help. So anyway... They should be. The real question is, is uh, how they do it. Because I know a lot of priests who do the same thing. Another thing that really concerns me has to do with the influx of a Protestant mindset about how certain gifts of the Holy Spirit work. Now here, I'm not talking about the charismatic gifts. I'm actually talking about, for example, the gift of knowledge. There is... 
a fundamental misunderstanding about how that thing functions sometimes. And, and it's also the same thing with this influx of how basically the lay people can impose and lay hands and do all this stuff, and etc. And there's a failure to understand the structure and nature of authority, but there's also a failure to understand grace. Father McLucas, who's a good friend of mine who ran the Latin Mass magazine for a number of years, kept asking me to write something on grace because of the fact that the theology of grace has absolutely collapsed in the Catholic Church. So, for example, you know, you get these people who, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are the charismatic graces according to the Council of Trent. This is not me. This is a formal definition of the Church. It says that they are gratuitous. And as a result of that, they cannot be merited. You can't pray for them and you can't get them that way. The second thing is, is there is this general misunderstanding about how grace functions even within the context of exorcism. The primary person that's going to receive the grace to know what to do is the exorcist, 80 to 90% of the time. And what I see too often is, is exorcists getting these people who say, I've got the gift of discernments of spirits. My tendency is want to take out a coin, I'll bet you what. You do your discernment, and I'm going to flip this coin, and we'll see who's more accurate. And I guarantee you the flipping of the coin is going to be more accurate. Because people keep going, well, I feel I just tune out, right? Because demons can affect our emotions, demons can affect those things. So one of the, there's all sorts of stuff that's made their way in. And one of the phrases that you're starting to hear is, is uh, more and more and more, you'll hear your exorcists turn to their assistants. Do any of you have a word of knowledge? Excuse me, that's a complete Protestant term. First of all, it's not one of those things, it's at your discretion, and you can just say, God, give me this, and then all of a sudden you get this enlightenment. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are purely activated on God's will. They're not something that you can dispose yourself to, and then all of a sudden he'll just do it through you. They don't work that way. They never have, and the Catholic tradition is absolutely clear on it. The point being is, is that there's this, the, um, does God give the assistance graces to see things? No question. There's all sorts of times they'll hear things or see things that I don't hear or see. But it's very rare, and it's not that common. The priest needs to learn how to re rely also on ordinary grace. The other thing is, too, is I can tell you this, as an exorcist, you get these cases, they grind out. They take years sometimes to break. And the tendency of the priest is, because of compassion, I want to, I want to help this person. Sometimes it's just pride, like, I just don't want to look like I'm useless here. Because quite frankly, you are useless here. I tell people, I'm just the guy standing by while Christ does his thing, right? But the point being is, is that the priests want to hurry things along. I'm sorry, but the process is entirely, entirely at God's discretion about when, what happens, and why. And anytime you try and push it or anything, you, you pray and you pray and you pray, and it doesn't seem like anything happens, the next time you might just do one little thing, and all of a sudden, boom, the whole... The whole situation dynamic changes because it's all at God's discretion. Okay. That being said, what's happening is, is, is that the, the involvement of the lay people is a failure to ultimately understand the nature of the priesthood and the nature of grace. That the principal instrument of the liberation that Christ chooses is the priest through whom the prayers are done. The person has to do their part, in fact, the vast majority of it, but they're not going to usually do it until there's a particular priest that Christ chooses in order to liberate. And the graces are going to go primarily through him, and these are going to be ordinary graces. Ordinary. You know, I can't tell you how many people say, oh, you're an exorcist. What gift do you have? Zero. I got nothing. Zero point zero. I tell people I'm a grinder. I'm, I've walked into fully infested houses and not felt a thing, right? Oh, seems fine to me. You know. the, 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 uh, the, the point being is, until after I started praying, right? Okay. The point being is, is what? Is, first of all, people think that these, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are just so plenitudinous. By that, I mean the charismatic are so plenitudinous that they're just all over the place, and you just got to find out what yours is. That is not at all how that works. The second, the second part of it is, is people aren't relying on the basic grace. So priests will say, well, we thought this happened and nothing happened. I said, okay, go back and do the ritual. Keep grinding it out. Well, what do you think I should do? Grind it out. Well, do you think I should try this? Grind it out. That's what I have to keep telling them. 
Because why? At a certain point, Christ will give you the grace, and then you'll see what you need to do. And most of the time, that comes through the priest. This is one of the reasons why I tell in my in my when I do exorcisms, I have lay people who are very highly trained, probably some of the best in the country. And I'm not saying that because I didn't even train them; someone else did. And I tell them, if you see something or hear something, like the person's levitating or something like that, then you tell me. But if it's something else, I don't want to hear it during the session. You bring it to me after the session. Oh, and by the way, I don't want you talking directly to the possessed person. And there's two reasons for this. One, people, I cannot tell you how many times the lay people have been talking to somebody who's possessed. They say something that is perfectly sound advice to someone who's normal, and all of a sudden it sends that person into a tailspin, and then you spend three days trying to dig them out of the hole. Because people don't understand, they're not in the mind of the exorcist who's actually dealing with this, and so they don't see the dynamic that could end up happening to the person if you say just some basic things. Okay. The second component is, is that demons absolutely love disorder. They love it. They'll do anything to get any set of disorder. Why do you think they're always trying to get the wife to take head of the household? Because once the disorder's in, then they can manipulate it. And that's exactly what happens. The, too many exorcists today are getting into these situations, they want to hurry things along, and then somebody steps forth, usually some woman, got this gift, and then he's listening to her through this whole process, and before it's all done, the lay people are telling the priest what to do. That's completely disordered. So that's why I tell them, bring it to me, I'll assess it to see if it's actually true or not, and we'll bring it up in the next session. My experience is, is that usually they just confirm something or tell me additional knowledge, but it's not going to change what I would have done anyway. And uh, that's, why, that's why I'm just a little nervous about how they're forming these, the priests. I'm kind of a persona non grata. I teach at the School for Exorcists in the country. And I'm kind of this persona non grata because I'm <laughs> constantly trying to follow right order. Um, and too many priests just want to get it done, right? They're too busy. I just want to get this done. Anyway. I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, or maybe I did. Yes. Hi, Father. Thank you for coming. Um, my question is also related to the uh, occult. And um, if you're unfortunate, as I am, to know of someone who uh, practices witchcraft, uh, witchcraft and they were to send you a curse, could that affect you? And I know I've been told if you're in, in, in a state of more of uh, state of grace, which in our sinful natures, it's almost impossible to be like that all the time, 24-7, they say you wouldn't be in touch. So I guess my question is to you, can it affect you, and what are some ways um, to stay, you know, be protected? Yeah, if you are in the state of grace, your odds of becoming possessed are pretty, or affected. You might get oppressed pretty easily, even if you're in the state of grace. Um, but it's not, it's, yeah, it's not going to, it's unlikely, though, if you're in the state of grace. It's just that there's not going to be that much. It's just not going to happen that often. The you can say prayers to keep yourself protected. Another thing which I've actually been doing for Donald Trump, I don't know if you saw that these white witches are doing their white witchcraft to get him out of office, right? So what I've been doing is I've been asking our Lord on a regular basis, about once or twice a week, if there's any curse sent against him or anybody he's working with you with him. I ask you, Lord and Our Lady, to send it back from whence it came. There is a real reason why you do this. It was something that I only discovered from another exorcist after I was an exorcist for about three years. With curses, you always ask Christ if His holy will, send it back from whence you came. The first time I did that with a person who was possessed, the demon just about flew out of his skin. No, don't send me back. Don't send me back. They don't want to go back, right? Because why? The demon that was in that person who sent him over is going to brutalize him when he goes back, so he doesn't want to go back. So that's what I've been doing. And so you can actually ask our Lord, look, if anybody tries to curse me, I ask you to send it back from whence it came, if it's your holy will. In the end, ultimately, whether you become subject to a curse is ultimately up to God. But he's more likely to allow it to happen if you have an open door. And so you have to be careful not to ever be in the state of mortal sin if you are to quickly get back into grace. And if you're around somebody like that regularly, if you can get away from them, try to get away from them or try and keep that distance. But then at the same time, ask you have to start saying to pray to St. Michael, Our Lady, 
your guardian angels, your, the saints, your patron saints for protection. Because in the end, we have absolutely no ability to protect ourselves. It's entirely at the will of God. One time this one demon stopped during one of the exorcisms. It was the noonday devil, actually, mentioned in Psalm 90. He stops and he looks at me and he just says, if you weren't being protected, I'd snap your neck. So I'm thinking to myself, hey, that's pretty cool. I'm being protected. It didn't even phase me about him. I was just like, that's cool. I like yeah. <laughs> And I know the fact that there are times that I'm being protected during exorcism. It's the same thing with us. You have to just pray that our that God, Lady, and our Lord protect you, and then you're less like and stay under that protection, stay under the authority structure of the church, your family structure, your superiors if you're religious, what have you. Stay under that authority structure is is going to keep you protected. Um, with regards to authority, the first bishop in Most Star had said that there was nothing spiritual happening in Medjugorje. Yes. The second bishop echoed that. Yes. Is this recent so did the third. announcement that this panel has now declared that the first seven apparitions were authentic? Is this just another example of what Our Lady Atikita said about bishop against bishop and denying them the authority? Well, my understanding is, and I'm open to correction, I'd have to go back and read it, is the commission thinking that it's authentic doesn't make it so. It has to be signed off on the side of the Holy Father. The second thing is that the first committee that was assembled under John Paul II, to a man except for the Franciscans who were involved with the apparitions, all thought the thing was not authentic in any of it. So the point being is, is um, until the Holy Father, at this stage, it's pretty clear that, well, first of all, let me say this. Canonically, the judgment of the, of the bishops stands firm until the Holy Father derogates it or abrogates the judgment. So, so at this stage, we just have to wait to see if the Holy Father ends up saying anything, whether it is or isn't authentic. So, in other words, the point being is just because the committee says that doesn't make it so. What makes it so is, is, is when the actual authority to adjudicate the thing says, okay, I accept the findings of the committee. So that's what we're waiting for. Can we go back to uh, possession again? And Are you worried about something? <laughs> um, how, do, how does one assess whether it's demon possession or possibly mental health? Or That's a whole... Con Actually, there's conferences of mine. I've already done it. It's on the internet. That's what I wanted your next retreat to be on. The whole thing. <laughs> yeah. work that. Yeah. But actually, I have done that. It's, uh, it's on the internet. If you're a priest, you can actually get the conferences that I gave to the School of Exorcists. It's, there's nine hours where I talk about how you discern that. So, any other questions? Somebody has asked a question. Right, here we go. She had, I don't think she has. Yeah. Is there a connection between Freemason and Freemason? A lot of Jews are Freemasons, and a lot of Freemasons are Jews, but their goals, I wouldn't say that there's so much that there is some type of causal connection as there is a cooperative connection. They have the same goals. Could you say percentage-wise when you say a lot? Well, I would probably say that a vast majority of Freemasons are actually Protestants, more so than Jews. Yeah. Although, yeah. So, that, at least that's the impression I've gotten in reading the who's who of the Freemasons kind of a thing. Okay, yes. Hi, Father. Um, am I fine with fire by putting exercise salt outside the abortion clinics? And also, I live in the Halloween capital of the world with lots of covens and a huge Masonic lodge. Hmm. Can I do anything or should I stay away? <laughs> uh, well, you know, a spiritual battle is like any other kind of battle. Just don't bite off more than you can chew. I have a this one woman one time. I, I liberated this one woman once. And she was an easy case. She only took three short, very short sessions. And she was liberated. And since so she kind of became this warrior, right? And so 
about once every six months, I get this phone call, Father Ripper here, I bit off more than I can chew. Well, what did you do? Well, you know, probably my recommendation would be not to put it on their property, but to simply, I, you know, if it was a priest, I would say, go ahead and do it. But for a layman, I would say, no, I mean, but you could use it to, like, put around you to keep yourself protected while you're praying, etc. In the Diocese of Tulsa, they actually bought the property across the street from the abortion clinic, and they can have mass and everything there. So, um, But I would probably say no. Now, one of the things that has kind of surfaced, we're... we're I haven't had a chance to verify it. I did get the faculties for it. I got to ask it for it in Denver, uh, or at least I would like to ask for it in Denver. Is there were two priests who started going to do the minor exorcism chapter three out of the ritual of Title Twelve, um, and they would do this minor exorcism with the faculties of the bishop over the abortion clinic for forty straight days. Every single place they did it, the abortion clinic closed within those forty days. So that tells you something. There's something diabolic about it. But that's what I was told. I haven't been able to verify any of that. But I think it's one of those things that I would just say, use that stuff to keep yourself protected and just continue to pray against um, what's actually going on there. Yes. Uh, yes. If we think or do evil things and we bring evil spirit, evil demons home with us, when we do pure and holy things, how many good angels and things do we bring home with us? You know, we don't know because we don't really have access to it. The real difficulty with with demons is is because they're di- they cause disorder, it's easier for us to see, right? Okay, there's something a little off here. Whereas when things out, uh, whereas angels actually try and act in such a way to give things a normal, natural order and structure, and so when things are running well, we fail to realize that that's actually a sign of angelic protection and intervention a lot of times, and so. Um, to answer your question, you know, we don't know. It's, it's one of those things that um, the only way we would know is uh, in the next life, probably. Yes. Father, in light of what's been discussed here about the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, what do you make of, apparently, that Vladimir Putin seems to be bringing Russia closer to Christianity? I, I figure if anybody's demonized by mass media that much, it's got to be something good about them. Yeah, that's my take on it, generally. You know, I have real mixed reactions with this guy. There's two things that make me nervous. One is he's ex-KGB. The second is is that he is, he is renewing the Russian war machine. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's bad, but that makes me nervous. On the other hand, the fact that he has reinforced the anti-gay laws, the fact that he's... Supposedly, the rumor is that he actually asked for the Russian to be consecrated. That's one of the rumors, although it's not verified. There, you know, there's a lot of things that he's been doing to kind of renew the cultural and the religious side of the society. But I've been also reading other things where he's also been involved in other stuff. So, you know, I don't know. I just I can't I can't conclude anything in relationship with the guy. So my hope is that he's on the side of the angels. So wouldn't that be the higher irony that the guy that's in charge of Russia is the one that's, I mean, I think that is ironic, right? Here, we're, we're, our lady didn't say consecrate the United States, even though we're probably more communist than Russia at this stage. Um, who's got the, oh. <laughs> Two more questions and then we should stop because I should hear confessions for just a little bit. Yes. Uh, sorry. Sorry. We seem to have bogged down. We can't get anything done. It's all this down. How do we find out what spirits are causing that, or how do we get rid of them? Well, the best, you know, what do you do if you if you, things are getting bogged down and you're trying to figure out which spirits are the ones that are blocking your advance, basically? And it's very simple. You ask our lady of sorrows, reveal to me what's the nature of this guy. I use it all the time in possession cases. If it starts to grind a little bit, I'll just take some time and ask Our Lady, show me what where I'm supposed to go from here. Show me the nature of this. And inevitably, in a very short period of time, usually within the week, something will break or we'll see something that we hadn't seen before. Or somebody outside will come in and reveal some piece of the puzzle that unlocks everything. 
So Our Lady of Sorrows, specifically under that title, because of the fact that St. Simeon said to her, your soul shall be pierced at the hearts of many will be laid bare, which means she can reveal hidden things. And so that's why you want to ask her specifically. Yes? You just mentioned sprinkling salt around yourself for protection. Yeah. Is it because you're sprinkling on the ground that that's okay? Yeah. Because I was cautioned not to sprinkle it, for example, in a hotel room for fear it would be vacuumed up. Uh, Yeah, you know, it's funny. Most of the theologians and most of the stuff that I've read doesn't warn against that. There's always going to be a certain amount of that, I think. The other thing is is that's not your intention. I mean, it's one thing if you're throwing it on the ground and vacuuming it up. It's another thing if you're just sprinkling it around the edges so that you're getting some kind of a protection from it. So um, one of the things I've, I've gotten recently, one exorcist taught me, said, you know, if you've got people who have a problem on their land, tell them to go out and buy four salt licks. You exercise them, and they bury the salt licks, and it lasts them forever. Right? I thought, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah. So we can't start less salt in our homes. Yes, you can. Yeah, in fact, people do it somewhat regularly, actually. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing.